0: To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact Podcast. Today on the show, I am joined by Doctor Lewis Ignaro. Doctor Lewis Ignaro is an American pharmacologist, Professor emeritus in the UCLA School of Medicine, and the co-winner of the nineteen ninety-eight Nobel Prize. Doctor Ignaro and colleagues won the Nobel Prize in nineteen ninety-eight. For their demonstration that nitric oxide, a molecule that we will discuss in depth, worked as a signaling agent within the cardiovascular system. This finding later gave birth to Viagra. You heard that, right? Now, if you're listening to this and wondering, what the hell is nitric oxide? What the hell is the cardiovascular system? And why should I even care? Well, please don't be put off. Is explained very well throughout the podcast by Dr. Ignaro, and the reason that you should care is that this molecule has the potential to make or break your health. You can expect to learn today what nitric oxide is, why it's crucial for brain health, why it's crucial in things like preventing diseases like Alzheimer's, how it boosts learning and memory, why it's key for reducing your risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke and more we talk about practical ways to boost nitric oxide and you can also expect to learn did winning the nobel prize make Luis ignaro any happier which i found a fascinating answer without any further ado please welcome dr Louis ignaro man welcome to the show
1: Thank you. It's really great to be here, Joe. It's an honor and a pleasure to do this uh, podcast
0: with you. Matt, well, we are delighted uh, because obviously, you know, you are the first Nobel Prize winner to ever appear on the show. You've taken our Nobel virginity, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're delighted to have you. But I'd love to just kind of start, I guess, with a question that kind of a few people were alluding to when we uh, mentioned that you were coming on. Many people perhaps often believe that being successful will make them happy. You won the Nobel Prize. I'm curious, did winning this make you any happier?
1: Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, look, uh, getting the Nobel Prize is such an honor. I I guess it's the greatest honor that can be bestowed on on a scientist or in literature if you're a writer and so on and so forth and I you know I worked so hard for so many decades to make my discoveries you know never knowing how really important they were I mean I thought they were important but does the world recognize that do all the other scientists recognize that and you sort of live this um this dream, and you don't know whether it's going to be successful or not. And then when the date October 12 1998 comes along, and I hear on the news that I've been awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine. I mean, I literally screamed, you know, here's a grown man, a scientist, a gentleman, and I screamed. And I've been screaming ever since Joe, yes, the Nobel Prize has made me a very, very happy person and it's completely gotten rid of all my gastric ulcers.
0: <laughs> I love it. So as you just mentioned there, 1998, you were the co-recipient of the 1998 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. You demonstrated the signaling properties within nitric oxide. But before we get there, Before we get to nitric oxide, I'd be curious just to kind of follow up with that. There are millions of scientists in the world, and most of them probably dream of winning the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Why did you win it and not the millions of other people up there?
1: Well, that's a very important question. And it's also a question which is important to answer so that the lay public understands. I mean, to put things in perspective, the first Nobel Prize was awarded in 1901. and we have six categories of the Nobel Prize, right? Chemistry, physics, medicine, then you have literature, economics, peace. Since 1901, less than 1,000 people have been awarded the prize. In medicine, only about 250 people have been awarded the prize the last 100 and, what is this, 121 years. And I'm one of them. Okay, so why did I get the prize and not the other thousands and thousands of brilliant scientists in the world? And here's the answer. It's all explained by Alfred Nobel in his Will and Testament that he published in 1996. For medicine, the two criteria for getting the prize are, one, you have to have made a novel discovery, a new discovery. You never get the Nobel prize for expanding the field. You have to discover the field, but that's only one criterion. The second criterion is that your discovery has to be shown without any shadow of a doubt to be of great benefit to humankind. Okay, so why did I get the prize? I discovered that our bodies produce a simple molecule called nitric oxide or NO. And this molecule exists in the atmosphere. It's one of the pollutants in our atmosphere. And here I come along and show that our arteries and veins and other organs can produce this molecule uh, as a signaling molecule to, to control the physiology and operation of many organs in the body. So this this was a new physiological parameter that all the scientists could focus on to see what can cause disease, how can we cure disease and so on. The benefit to humankind was that the molecule nitric oxide, as we showed in layman's terms, prevents stroke, prevents heart attack, prevents... Uh, uh, diabetes. In other words, the nitric oxide molecule lowers your blood pressure, keeps it normal. It improves blood flow to your brain and other organs, and it can prevent the blood from clotting in places where you do not want it to clot, such as the brain or the heart, because if the blood clots there, you get a stroke or a heart attack. So in a nutshell, that's what the prize was for. And I guess, you know, I made the discovery. So very difficult for me to sit here and say, hey, those discoveries are great. I deserve a prize. No, no. I let the other people give their opinions about that. But but I'm just trying to explain to you why I was given the prize. I cannot tell you why other very great scientists have not been given the prize. In many cases, great, great discoveries are made. But the benefit to humankind, uh, we don't understand, or we don't understand yet. And that's why the prize is not given to them.
0: Right. And I've been reading through your your brilliant book, Dr. No, uh, which is the, as you talk, the, the subtitle of the book is the discovery that led to a Nobel Prize and Viagra, which I of course, <laughs> <laughs> which which we'll get into today, which which I think kind of highlights the kind of impact that that it's had. Uh, but before we kind of get in there, one of the things that it kind of seemed evident to me when it was kind of going through your book that this was a journey that perhaps you'd been focused on for quite a long time, and perhaps even going back to you know this kind of sort of interest maybe even goes back to your school days. So I kind of wonder if you could share the kind of journey that this has been on and where it goes back to.
1: Sure, I'd love to do that. It's very important. And the the first question that comes up is, why did I choose to go into science? Why did I choose to go into chemistry and biology? Well, you know, I, I was fascinated with so many things when I was a kid. Kids are very curious. Kids are born scientists. They're very curious. They ask all kinds of questions. How does the eye see? How does the ear hear? Uh, how do birds fly? You know, uh, uh, on and on and on. And, and I would ask my parents a question which used to drive them crazy, as well as my teachers. I would ask them, mom, dad, does the universe have any end? And for those viewers, think about that for a moment. That question used to keep me up at nights when I was five years old, and I would wake up sweating because I couldn't figure out if the universe ever had an end. But to get more practical, I was really into uh, watching fireworks at the July 4th hour US Independence Day. They have lots of fireworks everywhere. And I decided at the age of 10 years old, that I had to get a chemistry set and try to make some firecrackers and rocket fuel and so on and so forth. And um, through some miracle, my parents decided, okay, we'll, we'll get you a, a chemistry set. My mom was not thrilled, but my dad said, fine. And so I made firecrackers, rocket fuel, and so on. I was very mischievous and very destructive when I was a young child. But that, that knowledge, the, the fact that you could actually do experiments and make something work Uh, just just blew my mind away. And I continued with this passion, uh, not only in chemistry, but also biology. I used to look for deceased animals outside and I would dissect them open to look at the inside and I would see that their insides looked just like what I could see from an adult anatomy book, uh, what adults looked like. And I was fascinated with all of that And just continued to study sciences with a passion in in high and in grade school elementary school and also uh high school i never lost the motivation to continue you know to study more about the sciences
0: and it seemed to me like you kind of had this kind of analytical and curious mind where you wanted to know for instance, why do some people perhaps overweight people um, in comparison to non overweight people? Why do they have heart attacks? Why do they have strokes? Why do they have more prevalence of type two diabetes? And was that kind of what give birth to, I guess, this hypothesis of a single molecule?
1: (laughs) Exactly, very good. Thanks for looking at that book in detail because uh, that's exactly what happened. So, and I can tell you very briefly, when I was in high school, You know, you learn about science in high school. You don't learn about medicine. You don't, you know, learn the details. But what struck me in the neighborhood that I was raised in, which is Long Beach, Long Island, New York, on the South Shore, I noticed that so many of my neighbors were dying in their 50s or younger because of heart attack or stroke. And they were all obese. And I used to watch what they ate And what they ate was lots of salty food, saturated fat. They used to like to eat chicken wings and chicken skin and so on. My parents are Italian. I mean, by definition, they ate healthy. They ate the Mediterranean diet. Many of my other neighbors and friends were so healthy. uh, uh, They were thin, they lived till they were 80 or 90 years old, which was quite a long time back then. And so then I, I started thinking about why do we have this dichotomy? Why do we have a bunch of people who get sick and die young? And then we have a, a bunch of people who live healthy lives. I would ask that of my doctor and other doctors, they didn't have an answer. And so I thought, this was back in high school, that just maybe we have something inside of us. Maybe we produce some molecule or molecules that actually protect us from high blood pressure, stroke, heart failure, and so on. And maybe those people who don't take care of themselves, for example, who are obese or eat this terrible diet, maybe they make less of a molecule, or maybe they make a different kind of molecule that doesn't protect them against these cardiovascular diseases. And that kind of stuck in my mind. I had no idea what it might be or how I would study it. But then you see, as my education proceeded and I went through undergraduate college and then finally wound up in graduate school, then I had an opportunity to actually do research, you know, bench top research uh, to try to test this hypothesis. So I kept this hypothesis for a long time. And sure enough, the day came in the 1980s where we discovered a molecule in the body that does exactly that, that it controls the blood pressure, blood flow, it prevents unwanted um, blood clotting. In other words, it prevents stroke and heart attack. Now, I did not design the experiments to answer those questions, because I had no idea what this molecule might be, even if it existed but the idea was there. And so as soon as I could see the pharmacology, the pharmacological properties of this molecule nitric oxide, then I had this epiphany that, oh my goodness, maybe this is the molecule that I've been thinking about. So that's when we went to see if our bodies make the molecule. For several years, we had been studying this molecule, which you can buy. You can buy it as a gas in a small gas tank and you can study it in the laboratory. But at that time, we didn't know that our own bodies made it. And then I, I said to you know, myself and my group in the lab, I'll bet you our bodies do make this. And so one thing led to another rather secure path. Research is not that straightforward. Right. But the bottom line is we discovered that our bodies do make than this nitric oxide. And then further studies by many other people, not just me, showed very, very succinctly that a healthy balanced diet promotes the production of nitric oxide, whereas an unhealthy, salty fatty diet destroys nitric oxide. And also physical activity, exercise is the most important way your body makes nitric oxide and if you lead a sedentary lifestyle you make much much less. So if you combine sedentary lifestyle with eating an unhealthy diet you have very little NO and you know what I'm going to say next you're going to get cardiovascular disease.
0: Right. And I definitely want to kind of go deep on uh nitric oxide within the body. But you said something that I would kind of just love to pick up on. You mentioned kind of that your parents, uh, you know, your your dad was Italian, so you had this kind of, uh, you know, you had the the culture with food uh, from where you you were. But it's interesting because obviously you won the Nobel Prize. Many people, I think they kind of, they held back by the idea that to reach the top of a field, you need from a young age to have been sent to the best board in schools to be, have piano lessons paid for you, <laughs> to have had the best tutors and whatnot. But that didn't seem like your story. Am I right? Oh, absolutely.
1: Mine is the complete opposite. First of all, my father was a carpenter, shipbuilder in Italy. He, he moved to the U.S. in the 1930s. Uh, he couldn't speak English. He was a carpenter my mom moved independently from sicily to new york they both met in brooklyn they got married and then i came along my mother never went to school my parents had no formal education my dad he could add but he had trouble subtracting and forget division okay (laughs) my mother was okay with it but the point is that when i entered kindergarten and the first grade of elementary school, my English was terrible because my parents didn't speak English. My Italian was great, but that was not going to help me uh, in, you know, in grade school. So my mom buckled down and she learned how to speak English and, but neither parent could help me with my homework. So I struggled through the first two or three years of elementary school, lots of poor grades. I never got an F. I never fell back. But the teachers did tell my parents that I'm borderline and I have a big language barrier. So I had tutors helping me left and right. And I had the passion all in myself, not from my mom and dad, not from my neighbors. I just had this passion that I wanted to be a scientist. I loved all aspects of science. So I really had to do this whole thing myself, okay? So no member, my mom and dad were uneducated. They were not professional. They didn't say, oh, you know, you should go to medical school. They didn't know what graduate school was. They barely knew what college was. My uncles and aunts all around them, same thing. So there was no positive influence from them. I mean, the influence came maybe a little bit from my neighbors who were educated, Uh, but you you don't live with them. You don't see them all the time, Uh, but they did have a positive influence, but I think it was my own passion that got me there. So I guess the moral of the story is, and I always tell young people this when I go from school to school to give a talk. And that is that in order for you to be successful, It is absolutely unnecessary for your parents to have been successful. You just need to want to do this on your own. You have to try to develop a a motivation or passion to do something. And I always remind them that don't worry if your parents can't help you. You know, we live in a great country, America, and I think the, the whole UK is probably the same thing. So many opportunities exist here. And if you want to do something, just go do it. You will be able to do it.
0: And that's what I did. Man, I got goosebumps listening to that. I, I agree with absolutely everything you said. And I always find it kind of so disempowering to take on these narratives that, you know, if, if the person next to me has been to this private school or this place or this place, that that's a destiny whereas you've clearly demonstrated that that it's not. So, man, I love that story. Um, (laughs) I'd love to kind of just kind of circle back now and let's kind of delve deep into, I guess, the mechanisms of uh, nitric oxide. So as you kind of mentioned that, you know, some people when they think about this, they might think of nitrous oxide, the laughing (laughs) gas. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wonder, could you kind of make the distinction for us perhaps and then just clearly (sighs) just kind of explain what the role of, nitric oxide is in the body, kind of, you know, what it does, and why it's so important to health. Sure.
1: Well, I, I can start off with a, a terrible joke. And that is that uh, nitric oxide is no laughing matter. You know? <laughs> now, the words sound the same, nitrous oxide and nitric oxide. And let me tell you, very, very often, Joe, when I'm introduced by doctors, to give a lecture, they introduced me as having discovered nitrous oxide. (laughs) You have to explain to them, you know, uh, very politely that that it's nitric oxide. And they thought it was one and the same thing. Nothing could be further uh, from the truth. Now, I don't want to give you guys a chemistry lesson, but very simply, nitric oxide is a the chemical abbreviation is NO, because there's one atom of nitrogen attached to one atom of oxygen, NO, nitric oxide. Now let's go to nitrous oxide. That's a little different. In that molecule, you have two atoms of nitrogen hooked up to one atom of oxygen. And so the chemical abbreviation would be N2O. Okay, nitrous oxide is N2O. Nitric oxide is NO. And you might say, if you're not a chemist, well, what's the big deal? Is that going to change the properties? Well, here's one property. N2O or nitrous oxide, I'm sure many of you have, ta- have inhaled it in the dentist's office where it is used to relieve some of the pain in your oral cavity when your dentist is working on your teeth. And you know, they make a 50% mixture of nitrous oxide with oxygen, 50%. It's very safe, it's very safe. With nitric oxide, you can't make a 50% mixture because it'll kill you instantly when nitric oxide is used by inhalation to treat certain diseases which we may or may not talk about it's used in 0.001 percent not 50 percent if you take nitrous oxide and you just put it in the air it'll be stable chemically stable for thousands of years wow But if you take nitric oxide and you put it in the air, it lasts for three seconds before it is destroyed by the oxygen in the air. So there's an enormous difference between nitric oxide and nitrous oxide. Now, nitrous oxide, laughing gas, doesn't really produce any effects in the body. What it does is when you mix it with so much oxygen and you breathe it in, It produces a pain relieving effect in your body. It's it's like an analgesic. It's used as an anesthetic. We don't know how anesthetics work, but but nitrous oxide is an anesthetic, but it does not produce any side effects anywhere in your body. It has no pharmacological effects, does not affect the blood pressure, does not affect blood flow, and so on. Nitric oxide, on the other hand, is something that our bodies produce. We we made the discovery in 1986, actually, that our bodies produce this uh, molecule NO. And the main site of its production is the arteries, the arteries in our bodies. So why do we make this? What does nitric oxide do? Well, it's not an anesthetic like nitrous oxide, but nitric oxide in vanishingly small amounts, Can relax your arteries and produce what we call vasodilation. It dilates the arteries. And what happens if you dilate the arteries? You'll reduce the pressure inside. This causes a drop in blood pressure. Also, if you dilate the arteries, you're going to increase blood flow, right? More blood is going to flow through the dilated arteries. So the most, some of the most important effects of nitric oxide in the body is to keep the blood pressure from getting too high. It regulates the blood pressure. It also regulates blood flow. Depending upon where in the body the nitric oxide is produced, it can improve blood flow to that region. Like if you're working out and you're using the muscles in your arms or legs, you get an increased nitric oxide production in those limbs in that muscle to increase the blood flow in order to deliver more blood, therefore more oxygen and deliver more nutrients to those working muscles. You know, mother nature is very, very smart. And also nitric oxide protects the inside of our blood vessels, it protects them against the blood clotting inside your arteries and veins. Normally, you don't want the blood to clot within your blood vessels. Sometimes because of some kind of disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, you'll, the blood will clot in the arteries. And if that happens in the brain, you have a stroke, If it happens in the coronary arteries in the heart, you get a heart attack. So, nitric oxide is produced constantly to prevent that unwanted blood clotting. I'll stop there, but there's so many other actions of nitric oxide.
0: Yeah, man. And please let me, let me pick up. So, just going over what you just said there. So, nitric oxide, this is a naturally produced molecule within the body. It's a vasodilator. So, in the sense that it increases this circulation throughout the body. And I would imagine that that plays, a key role, for instance, in allowing blood, oxygen, nutrients to travel effectively around the body. And if I may, could I just ask, is this perhaps one of the effects within a very commonly prescribed drugs, drug like statins? Does that work by enhancing the nitric oxide within the body?
1: You know, that's a provocative uh, question. Let me explain. <clears throat> When statins were first developed, uh, they were found to work by inhibiting the the deposition of cholesterol plaques to the inside of the arteries. In other words, they lowered the bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and prevented the cholesterol from attaching to the blood vessels. And therefore you wouldn't get coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. And for years, For decades, it was thought, the statins were thought to work just by this mechanism. And then about 15 years ago or so, uh, a couple of bright pharmacologists uh, reported that, hey, wait a second, statins do something else also. And that is they promote the production of nitric (laughs) oxide in your arteries. And the nitric oxide production also helps to prevent the attachment of the cholesterol plaques to the arteries. So I always tell my friends that you can never get away from nitric oxide, sorry.
0: <laughs> I, I love that. And, and one of the, um, cause you kind of mentioned, you kind of talked earlier about, you know, some of the benefits, uh, reduced risk of stroke, reduced risk of heart attack, diabetes, blood pressure goes down, oxygen to the brain goes up. So would I be right in inferring that if we can, for instance, increase the amount of nitric oxide within our body, that we would perhaps be less likely to develop neurodegenerative disease, things like Alzheimer's. Is that a fair hypothesis? Oh,
1: that's not only a fair hypothesis, it's a great hypothesis and it's more than a hypothesis. There have been studies mostly in animals showing that a deficiency in nitric oxide in certain regions of the brain can absolutely lead to symptoms of um, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia and also autism. So in humans, there's pretty good evidence that Alzheimer patients produce less nitric oxide in the brain So that there's every attempt on the part of drug industry to try to develop a selective drug that somehow can increase nitric oxide production or action in the brain to at least, you know, partially prevent or partially treat Alzheimer's. There's good evidence for it, but absolutely... You know, we're not there yet. We does not mean me. It, I'm retired. It means the scientific community. We're not there yet, but it's a it's a great uh, hypothesis because we know some great scientists. In fact, even in uh, the great scientists from the UK, from London, uh, John Garthwaite uh, showed 30 years ago that the brain makes lots of nitric oxide. And he showed that the nitric oxide produced in the brain works by helping us to remember things. It promotes memory, information recall, and learning. Okay. And a little bit of progress has been made in that area. It's very difficult to study. So if you take away that nitric oxide, you're gonna interfere with those functions. And those are the symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. I'm hoping before I don't get much older that they figure out how (laughs) to give nitric oxide to prevent uh, dementia. Uh,
0: And that's pretty remarkable, I mean, what you said, because as we kind of mentioned they, you know, you've got all these, I guess, cardiovascular benefits. But also what you just alluded to that it also may uh, be very beneficial in terms of things like learning and memory. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, what, what, what John Garthwaite discovered, and then we followed up in other areas of the body, is that nitric oxide is not just a molecule made in your arteries and veins, but it's also made in the nerves, certain nerves. And, you know, every nerve works, every nerve is attached to an organ to produce an effect. Okay. That's common sense, almost. And how does it do that? Well, every nerve releases a molecule, happens Mm. to be called a neurotransmitter. The molecule is released from the nerve. It travels a tiny distance to the target organ to produce an effect. Well, it it was discovered that in the brain, in the area of memory, learning, and information recall, the nerves in there release nitric oxide, which then affect different areas of the brain to promote memory and learning and information recall. Uh, I mean, I thought that was a brilliant discovery by John Garthwaite. And uh, as I said, I, you know, I, we followed that up in, in the periphery and other areas of the body to show that nitric oxide is a very important neurotransmitter. So NO is ubiquitous. I mean, it's found everywhere and seems to do everything, which I think is, is important to realize and to understand.
0: Absolutely. Um, I I wonder if you could tell me how you've become known in some spaces as the father of Viagra.
1: (laughs) Well, it's true. I I have become known in some spaces, mainly the scientific spaces, but the news media, at least here in the US, has spread the word. So now I'm surprised when some of the lay people in the public uh, have heard that phrase. Often, when I'm traveling for years now, when I'm traveling to give a lecture, I'm introduced surprisingly as the father of Viagra. And, you know, it's funny because my mom was alive at the time Viagra was marketed and she lived for another eight or nine years. And she used to always hear that. And you remember my, my mom is an Italian immigrant and she would always say, Lou, why do they keep saying that? Why don't you tell them to stop saying that already? (laughs) She didn't want to hear that. So let me explain why I was known as the father, why I I acquired the acronym, the father of Viagra. (laughs) You know, back, let's pick a year. uh, Back in 1990, I was talking to one of my urologist friends at UCLA, Then he told me that the neurotransmitter released from the nerves that attached to the erectile tissue, okay, was unknown. And he asked me if I knew knew what it might be. I said, his name was Jake. I said, Jake, I'm a pharmacologist. I'm not a urologist or a neuroscientist. What do I know what the neurotransmitter is? So we were talking and he planted a seed in my head and I went to the library. And that's when I read that John Garthwaite discovered that certain nerves with certain characteristics in the brain release nitric oxide. And then I started reading about the erectile tissue and the nerves that attach to the erectile tissue. And in my reading, I came across a group of uh, investigators in Spain who characterized those nerves as being very similar to nerves in the brain but he did not know what the neurotransmitter was. And then I said, oh my goodness, if these nerves in the brain release nitric oxide, could it be that the same kind of nerves in the periphery leading to the penis, leading to the erectile tissue release nitric oxide? I I thought it's possible. So I worked with my urologist in the laboratory, my people, his people, we set up various experiments first using rabbits and then using human tissue. And to make a long story short, we, f- we published in 1992 in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is like your Lancet, you know, really good journal. We published that the neurotransmitter is nitric oxide. And we showed how nitric oxide can cause relaxation of the erectile tissue. And we showed in, in dogs that administration of nitric oxide, produces an erection. And we published that. Okay, fine. I'm not a drug company. <clears throat> I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to test drugs in the clinic to see it could, if it could produce an erection. I wouldn't even know how to, how to do that. Neither did the urologist. But the key is that a, a pharmaceutical company close to where you're broadcasting in the UK in Sandwich, uh, England, they had discovered a drug back in the 80s that worked through a nitric oxide mechanism to lower the blood pressure. Okay, they were, they were, that, they were working at, on cardiovascular drugs. And they found that in order to lower the blood pressure in human volunteers, you had to give a lot. You had to give like 200 milligrams. And then it would lower the blood pressure, but it would produce this incredible side effect And the side effect (laughs) was penile erection. And so the nurses noted that, noticed that among all the male volunteers. So when Pfizer pharmaceuticals got word of that, they stopped developing the drug. They didn't want to mess around with that kind of side effect. And they stopped developing the drug and put it back on the shelf. That was a mistake they made. However, they were redeemed later when the people at Pfizer read about my work, that nitric oxide in the penis causes an erection, they took the drug back off the shelf, they did research, they filed a new drug application in NDA, and in record time the FDA approved it in, in, in this country, and in 1998 it was marketed as Viagra. And so the, the Pfizer people invited me to celebrate. They, they, you know, they, they told me that they would not have been able to develop that drug had I not published our work on nitric oxide. So that's why they started calling me the father of Viagra, and that spread out. So now you know the
0: story. Have you had? Many women write to you or send you letters saying thank you so much for. <laughs> oh yes, you know,
1: Joe. I w- you know, if we weren't on the air, I had so many stories, Mike. Maybe I could share them with you on the telephone. But yes, you know, it's the women who sent me the. Uh, in, in those days, they we just started to get emails. This is late nineties. So I got a lot, of, they got my telephone number. So I had a lot of telephone calls. I had a lot of letters, <laughs> letters sent to UCLA and a few emails just thanking me uh, for um, Viagra. And it, it was really no laughing matter because in most cases, really these people were young people in their forties. And so they had been having normal sex and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the partner, the husband couldn't get an erection or couldn't get an erection good enough to have sexual intercourse. And then when Viagra came out, all of a sudden they were back together. And so I received lots of communications from young people and also from the uh, uh, people who were 70 years old, 75 years old. But what's of interest is that for the younger generation, most of the communications were from women, but for for the older people, they were from men, you know, thanking me for for the development of that drug. And some of those were, you know, quite emotional. Uh, And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physician, I'm not a urologist, so I could not answer, you know, many of their questions. But the important thing is that, you know, they recognized that my work had led to Viagra, and they just wanted to uh, express their, their thanks. Uh, and, and it was at that time when I started receiving these communications that I recognized the importance of drug discovery. I mean, you know, when we had discovered nitric oxide, I was hoping that drugs would be discovered that would prevent the hundreds of millions of deaths due to heart attack, stroke, and diabetes but instead a drug gets developed that treats hundreds of millions of men of a disease that does not kill them, it just interferes with their sexual life. And so, I mean, who would have ever thought that that would happen? So it really does feel good, I have to tell you, that when your work leads to a drug where hundreds of millions of people a thank you and are satisfied. I mean, that's the gratitude. That's the reward that you get, you know, for doing basic research.
0: Oh man, that's that's absolutely brilliant, to you. So kind of you, you the the molecule which we're talking about, by your nitric oxide. We've kind of gone through some of the benefits: less risk of stroke, less risk of heart attack, less risk of diabetes, uh, lower blood pressure, increased oxygen to the brain, which we kind of talked about. Well, you know, less risk of neurodegenerative disease, increased learning and memory. And now as you've clearly shown there, the increased sexual function as well. So <laughs> I wonder to the person listening to this now that say, you know, this all sounds great. I want some of that for myself. What could people do naturally to, I guess, enhance the nitric oxide within their body? Sure.
1: That's a that's a great question. As I just said earlier, I wish that my research would have led to development of drugs, prescription drugs, perhaps, to prevent heart attack, stroke, and heart failure. But the technology is very, very difficult. Hard to make such a drug. Believe me, drug companies are trying. They would make trillions of dollars if they were successful. So in the meanwhile, while waiting for such a magic bullet, what can we do? Well, from the work that I did a little bit of, but thousands of people really did the work, I'm gonna tell you two things that you can do to increase your nitric oxide production and action, and you don't have to go out and really buy anything. It's so simple that most of the viewers may not believe me, but you know, whatever I say, why don't you go use your favorite search tool, whether it's Google or anything else, and research what I'm telling you. And you'll see that I'm not making it up. So the two things are what you eat and what, how active your body is. So without getting into tremendous detail, a healthy balanced diet is what thrives the production of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is made from certain amino acids which come from the protein you eat. So it's important to consume protein, but there's healthy protein and there's unhealthy protein. You don't have to have a fatty hamburger to get your protein to make nitric oxide. How about fish? Any kind of seafood products? That is the healthiest protein you could eat. Also plant protein like soy, soy protein, very, very healthy. So you can get your, you know, your healthy protein, but you also want to eat healthy fats. You don't want to have lots of fat on your beef. You know, you don't want to to, to eat or use saturated fat oils on your food. Uh, Use olive oil like the Italians do. That's why we're healthy. It's unsaturated fat. And also you want to keep the salt in your diet at a minimum. Salt is the number one cause of high blood pressure and heart attack in the United States of America. And I'll bet the same thing holds for where you guys live. Salt is, is, is just not good. I mean, I go to a restaurant and the people are sitting there and they got this plate in front of them. They don't know what the chef put in, right? So they pick up the salt shaker and you could count 10 seconds of salt, then they eat it. I mean, I could never eat that, tastes terrible, but that's what can kill you. So you gotta limit the salt and just just eat healthy. You don't have to go on special diets. I do not believe in the ketogenic diet and the all protein diet and the no carb diet. You are a human being, you have evolved in such a way that you need to eat what we call a balanced diet. If you eat all protein and no carbs, where's the balance? Balanced diet, you eat roughly 30, 40% carbohydrates, 30, 40% protein, 30, 40% healthy fat. So you mix them up, but each category has to be healthy. And I'm not giving you any evidence. Lots of experiments have been done to show the effects of these foods on your nitric oxide. I won't get into it. Let's jump to a physical activity. Yes. I use the word physical activity instead of exercise because I find that when I speak and use the word exercise, people go to sleep. They don't wanna hear the word exercise because they can't do it or they don't have any time to do it or whatever the reason is. So I call it physical activity. And according to so many different experiments that have been done globally, and also reported by the government here in the US, all you need to do is walk 20 to 30 minutes briskly, not run, just walk fast, 20 or 30 minutes, four days a week. That is all you need. There have been so many experiments done clinically to show that that boosts your nitric oxide. As you get better and better at it, you probably will increase more. You know, you don't have to, you know, jump and do things that perhaps uh, you're not meant to do. I, I, When I first learned about this, what did I do? Being as passionate as I am and motivated, I decided to run a 42K marathon. It almost killed me I, <laughs> when I ran it when I was 64 years old. Jeez. And then I ran 14 more. So I've run 15 marathons and I just turned 81 years of age. I feel great. I'm healthy but I don't run marathons anymore, of course not. Instead I bicycle outside and inside using a great program that was actually developed in the UK. Uh, it's not a Peloton, it's what's called Zwift program for cycling. Uh, but the point is that exercise and healthy balanced diet are the two things you can do to boost your nitric oxide. I'm not saying that maybe they'll boost it. I'm telling you that it's been proven to boost it. It is a scientific fact that both of those boost. So it's not a theory. It's not a supposition. It's a scientific fact. And so, and we know this from history for 5,000 years, people have been saying that exercise is good for your health. I mean, this started thousands of years ago. Okay. Finally, in the last 20 years, We understand why exercise is good for your health. It's because it boosts the production of tremendous amounts of nitric oxide. There may be other mechanisms, true. But the thing is that exercise will boost your NO. And as I explained earlier, because you want to have have increased blood flow in your working muscles when you're exercising. That's why your body makes more NO. But NO is NO. NO. produced in the muscles finds its way throughout your body. And what did we just talk about? What are the effects of NO on your heart, your blood vessels, your brain, and so on? That same nitric oxide that improves blood flow to your working muscles at the same time, strengthens your heart and blood vessels and your brain. That's why exercise is good for your health.
0: So exercise and diet, Clearly, they play a a big part in uh, NO production within our body. Let me ask you one more question about about, uh, NO within the body. What about the way in which we breathe? So, for instance, mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. Does that have any impact on it?
1: Oh, yes. Excellent. You ask the best questions I've ever heard on a podcast. That is extremely extremely important and you know who brought that to my attention is uh years ago the people who do yoga you say i i don't do yoga i do a lot of things but i can't do yoga because i can't bend my body in those positions without breaking a bone i just can't do yoga but my wife does it, and i've read a lot about it so to make a long story short it was discovered actually in in sweden many years ago among yoga experts and people doing research in that area that your nasal mucosal cells, the blood vessels in the nasal passages make huge amounts of nitric oxide. In fact, you can stick uh, electrodes, other measuring devices in the nose and you can measure all the nitric oxide that comes out of your nose. So. Nitric oxide, remember, is a gas. It's a gaseous molecule, just like oxygen, carbon dioxide, and so on. So when, you, when your nasal mucosa make nitric oxide and you breathe in through your nose, you're taking in the nitric oxide into your lungs. Okay, so what? Why is that physiologically important? Well, as I said before, nitric oxide relaxes smooth muscle. You have smooth muscle in your airways, like the bronchioles, the trachea, we'll just call them airways. The nitric oxide relaxes them, so more air goes in. So if you breathe in through your nose, you're ensuring greater delivery of air into your lungs. But the same nitric oxide dilates or widens all the arteries inside your lungs, this means that it increases the blood flow in the lungs. This way, there's more blood to reach more oxygen. So the blood carries more oxygen when it leaves your lungs and goes to the rest of the body. I mean, isn't mother nature something? That's why I love physiology. I mean, who would have ever thought these things? So breathing in through your nose does that. Now, your mouth does not make nitric oxide. So if you close your nose and you just breathe in through your mouth, that's fine, you're gonna live, but, but you're not gonna get any nitric oxide into your lungs. Now, what made this, so in yoga, for example, they teach you to, you know, I forget the names of the different kinds of yoga. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just ignorant in that area. But if you breathe in, there's exercises where you breathe in through your nose and, and breathe out slowly through your mouth. And in many forms of a yoga, <clears throat> the, the people doing the yoga make a humming sound or a sound from their mouth, mm, rah, like mm. that. And what these Swedish scientists showed about 15 years ago is that when you hum, the vibrations in your nose increase nitric oxide production over 10 fold. Wow. You can go Google that and read that. So the yoga people would have been doing this for hundreds, if not thousands of years before they ever knew about nitric oxide. And probably today they still don't know about nitric oxide and they're doing that. And finally to put the icing on the cake. When COVID-19 hit us, this whole thing became very important breathing through your nose, because when you get COVID, the first thing that happens is that your arteries, the endothelial cells lining the arteries get destroyed. The endothelial cells are the only cells in your arteries that make nitric oxide. So when they get destroyed by the coronavirus, you get vasoconstriction, you get less blood flow in the lungs, You get less air delivery in the lungs. And also nitric oxide was shown years ago to kill viruses, including the coronavirus. So when you get less NO in your lungs, you have a breeding ground for the the infection caused by the coronavirus. And when people die of COVID-19, they die from a massive pulmonary embolism a huge blood clot in the lung because there's not enough NO to prevent the blood clotting. So during the pandemic and especially now while we still have remnants of it, I encourage everyone whenever possible to breathe, inhale through your nose. You can exhale any way you want, but inhale through your nose as much as possible. And the best way to do that is to keep your mouth shut. And your neighbors may be thankful of that for other reasons, you know.
0: <laughs> Man, I've absolutely loved this. I got one question left for you that we sign off all of our podcasts with before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you and, and all the information about your book. The question we sign off all of our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living?
1: Great question. I think that what makes a life worth willing <clears throat> worth living are, are two things. One, very importantly, happiness. Y- you have to be happy. You know, you have to laugh and just enjoy life. Because no matter how much you accomplish, if you don't enjoy life, if you're not happy with your life, it, it, it makes it makes life quite difficult. And, and and the second thing is try to do something to help your fellow citizens. Don't always think about yourself. Try to do something to help others. It may not help you that much, so what? I mean, I get great joy and satisfaction when I see that whatever I've done, not just in science, but in talking to people or helping people, whatever, if I can see that they're grateful that I've helped them, that is just, it's just a warm feeling inside of me and it just makes a living that much more worthwhile.
0: That's such a beautiful answer. Uh, Dr. Ignaro, where can these guys connect with you? Where would you like our audience to to go? What would you like them to check out?
1: Well, I think that uh, you can always look uh, my name up. It's uh, Lou or Louis Ignaro. And I can give you my uh, uh, my email if you want to check with me. And it's, lignaro at gmail.com. Uh, I have a Facebook page, just, just Google lignaro Facebook and, you know, and, and you'll see all that. Uh, and, and that's probably the best way to connect. And of course, I'm not here to sell my book. But if you're really interested in a good read, then Dr. No uh, is great. It's about what we discussed today. It's a memoir. It's about my life, my struggles, and how I uh, went from, uh, you know, being the son of immigrant parents, uneducated parents. How I climbed to the top of my profession and got the Nobel Prize. And there's a lot of talk about the Nobel Prize. So you can you can certainly connect with me that way as well.
0: And I thought that uh, just lastly, just to kind of endorse your book, I. Uh, when I read the book, I, we've got some quotes from the book that we've got in our newsletter, which goes out on Monday. So we'll be sure to tag you on on Instagram as well when it goes live. Oh yeah, Instagram too. E- sure, yeah, e- Instagram. We will link down below for everybody that's listening or watching. You can just swipe up or click the the description. Everything discussed will be linked below. Man, I want to thank you so so much for coming on, delivering not just so much value to our audience but as we've kind of talked about, so much value to society uh, across the world. It's been a true privilege for me uh, to to uh, for this show to have this uh, Nobel virginity taken by by such <laughs> a great man like yourself. So Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe.
1: Thank you. It's, it's <laughs> been great. I, I loved it. Thank you.